Located in sunny California, in Silver Lake, and Malibu. Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his good friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, to create a facility that treats addicts and alcoholics with connection and compassion rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of experience treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness, or as we like to say, SMI. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, and they treat people uh, with a good heart. I have a bunch of friends who went there, and they vouch for this place. So I vouch for this place. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. They have the incredibly spiritual sweat lodge. They have sound bath meditation. They have surfing. They have equine therapy. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Soberlink. Somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable, handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to Dopey listeners, Email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for $50 off your device. Do it for that someone who cares to help you stay off the sauce. That's soberlink.com. Write them at info at soberlink.com. Mention Dopey and save 50 bucks off your first device. 
This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our new friends at Clean Cause, the organic sparkling yerba mate beverage packed with 160 milligrams of better caffeine. It tastes amazing and is designed to empower your daily passions. The best part, though, is that 50% of their profits empower individuals pursuing recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Sit down, because listen to this. To date, they've granted over 2,000 sober living scholarships, and which has represented more than $1 million. $1 million! So go to cleancause.com and use the code DOPEY15 for 15% off your next purchase. Again, you go to cleancause.com to support this amazing company and use the code DOPEY15 for 15% off your next purchases. And it's delicious. Yerba Mate from Clean Cause. This week's episode of Dopey is also sponsored by our friends at the Recovery in the Middle Ages podcast. Recovery in the Middle Ages is the creation of Nat X and Mike R., two middle-aged suburban dads wrestling with addiction and recovery while trying to juggle home life, work, and staying sober. Each week, the guys talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings, if the neighbors only knew. In addition to their personal experiences, Mike and Nat and their occasional guests also discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including alt-recovery, medically-assisted treatment, and alternatives to 12-step, as well as giving their take on traditional recovery groups like AA and NA. Recovery in the Middle Ages can be found everywhere you find your podcasts and also at middleagesrecovery.com. Most importantly, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by you guys through the power and the passion of Dopey Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. It's really an amazing thing. It allows me to put out more content for you guys, and it creates a way for you guys to give directly to Dopey, which provides more Dopey in the universe, which is really my aim. If you guys get anything out of the show, please find it in your hearts to kick down to Dopey Patreon because there will be more Dopey. Support Dopey Patreon at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. I really, really, really appreciate it. If you want gear, go to dopeypodcast.com. We have a ton of super cool stuff. I'm going to start posting more on Instagram. You can see it. There is an amazing potter named Sasha Barrett. He's made these incredible handmade dopey mugs. There are two left. Look for him on Instagram at Sasha Barrett. Buy a mug. It's beautiful, handmade, and one day will be worth a fortune of money. Maybe not, but maybe. I also have a shitload of dopey hats, the blue and the red, the blue and the orange, the black and the white. We just got new Oyve hats, and of course, I have a shitload of dopey stickers as well. Just Venmo me. Write me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com, and I can get it out to you whenever. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and we have a very, very sensational guest. She is a YouTube, er, YouTube superstar, podcaster, comedian, 
columnist for Playboy, Huffington Post, The Atlantic, The Federalist. Am I missing anything? Medium? Oh, I think you've got it. I think, I think that's a good list. Playboy, you said? <laughs> yes, I said Playboy. Didn't I say Playboy? I think so. She, uh, she's an amazing lady, and she's in recovery, and she's a drug addict, and her name is Bridget Fetisey. And welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You are very persistent, and I applaud you for that, because it has taken me a year to be wrangled for this event. It was totally worth the year, and, and, and I went through all the emotions of the year. I was, exci- <laughs> I was excited, and then I was disappointed, and then I was excited again, and then I was crestfallen, and then I was resentful, and then I was angry, <laughs> and then I was hopeful, and now here we are. So this is great. Sorry to put you through that. <laughs> it just shows it just shows the kind of addict that you're dealing with. So I yes, think, I understand I think, this. Right? Does it sound mm-hmm. familiar? It does. It's the roller coaster of self-loathing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing it's an amazing life we have. It, how how like integral to your whole internet kingdom is your recovery and your addiction? Uh what uh, that's a good question. In, in in what respect? Like, how much do I talk about it, or how integral is it to me managing all the things? Or I, I think in both respects. Like, I, I I don't see you talking. I mean, I see you mention here and there recovery on Twitter or publicly or whatever. But how does being an addict like how does it play a part of your of your whole career? I guess it's a very broad question. You yeah, can choose. No. You, Choose a lane, whatever. Uh, I, that's a great question because, you know, I don't try. So when I got sober this time, which was the third time I've not, I would say not, this was the first time I actually conceded to my innermost self that I could not drink normally. So I would say the other two times that I got sober, I had no intention of staying sober. I was just doing it because I either needed to take a break or because I was a junkie when I was 19 or it was an experimental year just to prove to myself that I wasn't an alcoholic. So there was an end date. So this was the first time that this past time, which I got sober October 18th, 2013, um, this time was... I think more for real, I and I knew that some somewhere inside of me. And when I got sober, one I had a lot of issues with AA that I I built a case against AA after my first recovery when I was a, in 19, 20 years old and in rehab. In order to go back out and drink happily and not be filled with cognitive dissonance and torture myself. So I kind of um I I built this case and hated it. And when I came back in, it took an enormous amount of humility after all of these years of telling myself that AA was garbage or 12 steps were garbage and fear-based. And I didn't, there were certain things about the program and recovery that I did, I knew for me um, weren't enough. Like, it wasn't enough for me to base my identity around not doing something. That seemed too negative. So I knew that I couldn't drink and use normally. I knew those things, but I couldn't 
it was not enough to keep me sober. I needed there to be something aspirational, something that kept me going. Because I think in early sobriety, you're just so focused on like not doing that thing and not drinking and not, and I wanted it to be like, well, I'm doing this for a higher purpose because that higher purpose is the only thing that's really going to keep me sober long-term, I think. You need to keep it positive instead of negative. Like what, 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 like what it's going to give you instead of what it's going to take away. Which is why with it. Yeah, exactly. Which is why. And I know what it's going to take away. And I can't forget that. That's the, the, I, the kind of paradox of sobriety is that I know that if I change, if I go back, I lose everything. I used to hate those people who are like, everything in my life says property of AA, should say property of AA when I first came in. I was like, get fucked. And now I never I, even, I never heard that one. I oh never heard that God. one. God, I, I used to hear it all the time when I first came, like this one speaker who really stuck out. He said, everything in my life should be stamped property of AA. Mm. And if you put sobriety, family, work in that order of importance in your life and prioritize your life in that way, everything will work out. And anything you put before recovery, you will lose. Yeah, that's the one I always hated. That was like the ghost of Christmas future. It's like <laughs> anything you put in front of AA, you will lose. <laughs> And it's like, fuck you, no way, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, I, I, that shit, I hate it when it's right. I, I mean, my, I life is, my life is a miracle, miracle success, and I resent AA for, for, that, for that being true. <laughs> it's like, it's the most fucked up, you know what I mean? I hated all the fucking platitudes. I did, I did a stand-up routine about it. I was like, I, I'm in recovery, and I hate all the platitudes and sayings that, like, 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 you know, the the one that drove me nuts was like, let go and let God. I was like, let God what? Pay my rent? Like, I'm sure my landlord's going to be freaking stoked. And I'm like, don't worry, this month's on God. God God's got it. Don't <laughs> worry about it. He's got this. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's Man. not how the real world works. <laughs> or like, or um, like, this too shall pass, which is true. But it's also like, yeah. Thanks for telling me how the fucking nature of time works. I'm, I appreciate you reminding me that this is exactly how physics and time work in our, in our reality. <laughs> right, right. It's, again, it's just fuck you. But the funny thing is, like, even with time and even when I feel like I'm on the beam, I constantly forget that this too shall pass. Like, I'm, yeah. in, I'm in, like, fucking chaos, crisis. One thing goes wrong, and I'm like, I'm the biggest idiot in the world. I fucking suck. I fucked that up. I'm nothing. And it's like, of course that's going to change. Of course tomorrow brings something else. The next hour brings something else. But, I mean, that, those things are programmed in because we forget. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. But I still hate them. I hate them, too. I don't hate them as much. But, yeah, so I, I heard that, everything, and I was just like, whatever. And now I look at my life, and I'm like, yeah, I, I, every single thing, including my husband, if you had told me that I was going to marry somebody that I met in recovery, I would have laughed in your face and told you you were a psychopath. Um, I can say that it all should be stamped property of AA. I mean, it, it, it is unfortunately true. <laughs> and I don't want to be, the funny thing is, is I still have so much, like, there's something in me that's like, ah, this is so fucking dumb and cheesy. And it, it has objectively worked. I can see in my life 
how it has worked. And I still, like you said, resent it for working. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's, it's the best. But that's like my, that's another great thing about like, we can take a laugh at it. Like as long as we're doing our best. And I think like that was something that attracted people to Dopey in the first place that like I would shit on meetings and I would talk, yeah. shit, about, I would talk shit about AA or, or 12 step or whatever. We'd make fun of it because like, why not? You know what I mean? Like we, we're not, we're not, we're supposed to be able to have fun. No, you know I, I, mean? I always joke that I never want to relapse so bad that I come back quoting the big book, you know, like on page 362, I don't like that. That's I never want to bottom that bad that I'm like a big book quote. You know, I know every quote on every page of the big book. That is so funny. There's a dude <laughs> in my meeting who quotes the pages and he has no teeth. Right. You know, what I mean, he's no teeth. I love this guy. He, he It's on the beach of Long Island. He wears a leather jacket. He has no teeth. And now he, he was angry over the summer. And now he's quoting the big book. I was driving through town with my daughter and I see this guy wheeling on the on the sidewalk on his bicycle getting pulled over by the cops as <laughs> I'm driving through town and he's fucking quoting big book pages and I love this guy you know yeah. what I mean he's it's but that's who we are you know We're not it's perfect a, No sir no man not, no. Not a, Yeah so I didn't I guess the long way of answering your question is that um it's part of me, you know, sobriety has given me my life, but I don't lead with it because I just, I would rather just have people find that out and be like, oh, that's crazy, you know, or it's that kind of that idea that we don't, um, what is it? Like, we're not proselytizing. I'm not out there like, I'm sober in this, but I will mention it. I'm not ashamed of my recovery either, but it's, it's something that a lot of people in my like fantasy.com community where we share, it's like my gated community online and it's a subscriber site. And I, I created it just to kind of gather the people who are truly like, um, we call them the fam, like P H A M. And there's tons of people in that community who who are in recovery not just recovery from drugs. There's lots of people who have eating disorders or food stuff. And it's so uh, people who aren't, who don't drink or are normies. I mean, it's such a like ver variety of pe and people who drink and it's, it's just, everybody's kind of just there sharing and their shit and helping each other. But there is a strong sense of, um, self-improvement and bettering yourself and and I'm always kind of pushing like get out of your own way I have it's kind of started it started as a skated community and now it's like a virtual gym because I was going insane in lockdown and I am bad at holding myself accountable I'm just not great it's why I needed lots of commitments when I first got sober because I need a reason to show up because I'm fucking constitutionally lazy and I started these workouts. I call it the sisterhood of the Sarah, Sarah Connor because we, I was like, it's the apocalypse. Like, let's get in shape. And it's amazing. It's like kept me. I don't even want to go back to the gym because I do it every single day at noon and I do a Zoom workout and I'll stream a Zoom workout to a place that I subscribe to. And then all these women log in and we all work out together. And it's freaking awesome. Like that, that accountability has. And now some of them are getting sober and. It's just so that kind of attraction rather than promotion that was attractive to me in AA that that sense I think in general is so important 
And I was a mess. You know, I, I when I, my first two years of sobriety this time were, I was, I was like a goth chick and so mad and angry and depressed, resentful, pissed off. I would like talk shit about the program while I was new. I cried in every meeting. <laughs> I was just like a disaster. And I see, I see why it's important to remember that, but I needed to hold. I was very, the thing that kept me sober really was in those moments when I really wanted to drink and use were t- like two things. One, knowing it wouldn't make anything better. Knowing I tried literally fucking everything else. And the other thing was I was genuinely curious who I was without drugs and drinking and al- like weed and alcohol and drugs. Right. I had no idea. Right. That who is that? That's like science fiction to me. You know, I would hear people be like, I've got 10 years. I'm like, this is like a science fiction novel. Like how 10 years? I can't even string together 10 days. That sounds so long. And now here I am staring down the barrel of eight when it just kind of flew by. Well, it was it was the experiment to find your true self, to be who you wanted to be originally. You know, I, I share a lot of that. Like, for me, it was like I had 41 years of doing whatever I wanted, and the only thing I had to show for it was, like, a waiter job in a, a subletted apartment. And I was like, this is for... And I also knew that I had gotten as high as I would ever be. Like, that was the mantra. Right. There was no higher. You know what I mean? This is everything. And then it's like, but what... It's like what you said. It's like, but what would it be like sober like what would that be like for 40 for you know the next 15 years the next 20 years what does that look like like what could I accomplish and I think when I watch you it's like you've accomplished so much in this burst of sobriety and you've like actualized your dreams from childhood yeah it's been a crazy eight years but I also feel like it's been a giant game of yes and you know I I I love that that's the the worst game in the world it's like an improv routine where I'm like, yes, and now I'll go on Glenn Beck because why not? Like it, I if you I do jokes about this now too. I'm like, I you know they say when you get sober you're not going to recognize who you are, <laughs> and then and because of the way the culture shifted, I got sober and I was like, I'm a conservative now. That's <laughs> like funny. how much. How much fucking weed was I smoking? And I'm not, but it's just like the culture kind of shifted left in the in the like 15 years that I was black. Totally. And I kind of came to and was like, wait, what's happening? Boys and girls aren't different anymore. <laughs> <laughs> How drunk was I? Exactly. It's total total time warp, time machine shit. When did you realize? Let's take it back. Like, when did you realize? Obviously. You have a prodigious career of drinking and using and blacking out. At what, somebody asked me this, like, they said, at what point did I realize I was an addict? Like, when did you realize that you were an addict? I knew. I mean, I knew in high school. I used to joke about it. And I come from an Irish Catholic family. And they're, like, we, 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 we literally had a family wine-off between the aunts and the girl cousins all the like young and there was really no way of knowing how who is going to win this wine off it was basically a competition to see who could drink more and then my I'll never forget it my aunt who was supposed to not be smoking snuck a cigarette 
And then someone came outside and she stood up too fast and pat like just ate shit <laughs> in the gravel and had gravel like embedded in her forehead and was bleeding down and she probably needed stitches. My other aunt is a nurse and was like, you need to like, like get that looked at. And, and my cousin comes out. She's like, we won. We won. And the aunts are like, why? And she's like, because we're not bleeding. Perfect. <laughs> like, that's the kind of family system I come from. So alcoholism is in my family. It was, um, I remember visiting my grandfather in a treatment center. And he was a World War II guy who, you know, like buried that shit deep and just like, Bear that shit deep like the greatest generation. And Drink it away. was a pretty happy-go-lucky drunk. Just leave me alone. You know, he wasn't mean. He was just kind of happy and, and wanted to drink. And um, there's a lot of it in my family, a lot on both sides. And my grandmother actually warned me when the grandmother whose funeral I was on heroin at warned me when I was like... 14 or 15, she said, I'll never forget it. She was dropping me off somewhere and she said, you need to be careful. You have the gene. Mm. And I was like, what gene? She's like, the gene your grandfather has and you need to watch it. And I just was like, whatever. How do you think she saw that in you? I don't know. I mean, I was partying pretty hard, pretty young. You know, I was going hard at 15 years old. Like I, I, I in terms of like, drinking and smoking weed and smoking cigarettes and I I, I felt like I was so old too and I look back I'm like oh my god I'll see pictures of my like sister and I smoking cigarettes and we're just like children I'm like we were, why didn't anyone tell us to stop smoking you're like children like 15 and 12 like what the fuck <laughs> that's funny so wild to look at now just these like baby faced teenagers with cigarettes and, and you'd be fucked up at family parties smoking with your family and like they yeah. could see it they could see it i kept everything hidden like my i came from a jewish family nobody did anything you know what i mean like i did everything outside of my family situation they didn't realize i was on heroin until i called from detox you know what i mean um but yeah, my family didn't really pick up on that one. <laughs> they didn't realize that. I, I don't think if you've had any ex experience with that, like, why would you assume that or no? You might be like, something's wrong with this kid, but I don't think your automatic is like, clearly they're on heroin. Something's, something's jo wrong. Little exactly. Johnny, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you're, you started smoking weed when you were like 13 or something, 14? Yeah, I started drinking at like 12 and then smoking... Um, and th 12, 13, right around when my parents got divorced and nobody was really paying attention. And I remember that first drink. I fucking remember it to this day. Just how, and you hear this all the time, just like I was, uh, I moved a lot. I never felt comfortable in my skin. I was out at this, like, we went out to this island. I was living in Connecticut and it was all older kids and then me. And they told me to guard the beer while they all went off and had sex or whatever. Nice. It was like like three couples and then me. And I slammed like six Budweiser's and they came back and I was just wasted. This like young, I must have been 13 or 12 and they were like, oh shit. And so, um, but I remember sitting by the fire and drinking a beer and being like, this is fucking great. Just all by myself. I wasn't even at a party or anything. And that really defined a lot of my drinking. It was very much like I could have happily drank alone by, by myself 
a bottle of champagne. Like I, I didn't need it to be comfortable around people. I wanted oblivion from day one, just escaping the incessant torture of my brain. That was what I was seeking. And that feeling of just relief that it gave me, it really does make me think it's a gene because I ask, you know, my friends who are normies, the, their stories of the first time they drank and they either can't remember or they didn't have that experience of like, ah, like that relief. First time I drank, I blacked out. I don't remember. I remember I, I drank like 16 screwdrivers with like the wait staff of the camp I was at and I was out, yeah. like near death. Uh, and alcohol never worked for me. I always would get sick. But when I got stoned for like the fifth time, I was just like, I was like, this is how I need to feel. In order to be the person that I want to be, I need to be on this. Like the I, per- I, That's how I was. Yeah, no, I can totally. So right after I drank... We moved. I kept on drinking. I started smoking cigarettes when I and then I came. I came and visited my friends in Connecticut, and we went to a head shop and smoked a joint on the way to the head shop. And that was the first time I smoked weed, so I was probably thirteen, fourteen, and I got high the first time I smoked because I smoked a lot of that joint, and then immediately bought a pipe when I was in the head shop. Like that was. That was the way I did everything. It was like, smoke one cigarette, I'm a smoker. Drink a beer, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drinker. (laughs) Smoke weed, I'm a daily. And weed was easier to get when I was a teenager than drinking. So it was just easier. I mean, I would smoke every morning before school. And I just, it was was my uh, Prozac. It was my, I think it helped me a lot with ADD for some weird reason. It kind of like slowed me down enough fucking quitting weed jesus christ that the withdrawal from weed is not enough people talk about the rage that comes up when you quit weed (laughs) well it's hard to find the focus patience well yeah i mean i i smoked weed add style too like i did it to 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 tune in or to drift away because i was so on everything and then when i smoked weed i was like peaceful and it's like yeah. I didn't I never had like paranoid delusions on weed it just didn't hit me like that yeah I had like classic stoner shit like and and I that's all I wanted to be was like this stoner who didn't give a fuck the first time I went to real rehab and they told me to write a letter to heroin my letter was how could you take me away from weed <laughs> <laughs> that's that was really my- funny those letters are so funny i had to do that too like the goodbye letters you have to write to your drug of choice and when i was in rehab they told me your drug of choice rehab for heroin they told me your drug of choice is marijuana and i was like marijuana is not a drug and they were like yeah therein lies the problem like exactly well, it's like, it's like, shh, don't tell me that. I'm here for heroin. I'm not here for weed. Don't take it away from me. That's my precious, precious. Yeah, it was my precious. I mean, we had this ongoing joke. I had one of those little bats. You know, I just loved them. Like, mm-hmm. I, I could make my... Because I was smoking so much weed, and I'm like, I don't need to smoke this much. I can get fucking stoned off, like, two or three hits of a little bat, and still be and just kind of maintain that way and not be like smoking a whole bowl or a bong or whatever and so I started that was like my go-to and I called it pinchy and it was like this ongoing joke at every single party if I dropped it or anything one time we were at this party 
and I dropped it off a porch and you could hear it like clink, clink, clink when it like hit the bottom. And everyone who knew me on the porch was like, pinche. Exactly. <laughs> and we'd be like, pinche, no. It was just like part of, it was as, it was just a part of me. It was always with me. Define me. It's also like if you take one hit off a bat and you take the whole one hit and you take it in one shot, you get high. You know what I mean? Like it's like way different than just like tranquilly smoking a joint when you <laughs> hit a one hit like really crazy. I mean, I'm I was, the worst stoner though. I never learned how to roll a joint. It's so embarrassing. I, I wasn't could, a good joint roller either. I was very sloppy. Embarrassing. I mean, I remember being in Sri Lanka and we were trying to like roll a hash joint and my friend and I who were both huge stoners he was from australia and i was from the states and the people were like how the fuck did neither one of you i'm like i've been smoking weed since i was like 13 i don't know how i never learned how to roll a joint i just never had the patience for it it takes like a certain it's just, it's like the, it's a certain guy who's the good joint roller or the so good true. the good blunt roller like one of my best friends was like he would just and i i wouldn't even mess with it because like why should i do my stupid, <laughs> fucked up, sloppy joint when my friend would do the artisanal yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking shit. You know what I mean? It's so true. There's always that, like, one... And it's always, like, the cool chick with the dreads who, like, could roll the joint with one hand and, right, like, right, learned right. how to do it while she was abroad in Germany. Right, <laughs> like exactly. That wasn't me. Amazing. I love that <laughs> stuff. How did it accelerate into the other stuff? Like, when did other drugs show up? And again, when did you knew you were an alcoholic right away because you were drinking alcoholically with your family? When did it? When did the the drug kind of thing take hold? You know, I look at like I managed. I was always a straight A student, even moving, and I look at how I maintained for a while. And really looking back at my high school years, my addiction and alcoholism was already affecting the course of my life. Now, there was a lot of shit going on in my household that I was probably using a lot of drugs and alcohol to manage what was going on at home. And in some ways, I'm very grateful for weed because I'm not 100% sure that I could have been fully present for that as a young child and not killed myself you know like I, I don't I think it was a, the only coping mechanism that I had under the circumstances so I try not to beat myself up too much for that I did you know some hallucinogenics I loved mushrooms I hated acid I hated it and because my upbringing was so chaotic and there was always shit going down in my house I just was ter I had to kind of be in control I was always the girl I like prided myself on being like the dorm. I was the dorm mom type where it was like I I would make sure that the girls who were puking were okay or, you know, the girl who took too many drugs was like had water. And um, I'm the oldest of five. I think that just comes naturally. And I also didn't want to be on acid when, you know, I found out some shit went down with my stepdad and now like I needed to come home or whatever. So I always had that need to be in control. I could not just like relax into the experience. My, and I already had so many demons and like dark shit going on around me at that time that it was just, you know, the teenagers that I was around, they're like, Chana, fuck la. Like, let's go do some acid. There's no <laughs> off switch on acid. Once you turn on the acid, there's no shutting no, it off. No, I, I hated it. Hated it. 
Hated it's, it. It's funny. My The guy who I used to do the show with would be like, if I said there's no off switch on acid, he would say, oh, yes, there is. If you take an antipsychotic, the, the acid will get shut down. You know, and it's just like, that's such a funny thought to me. You know, I it's, wasn't I wasn't like a big mixer, too. No, I, of course. Who has I antipsychotics just, lying around anyway to shut down the acid? It's like a crazy thought. I mean, thought. I probably could have, thinking back. But I, I didn't like doing, like, I, I don't know, I, the most, I just didn't. I was, I'm a control freak in that sense, so I didn't really like mixing and matching too many things that that would... I, I really didn't like that, like, out of control. Um, I was trying to escape, but I didn't like that feeling of, of just, like, complete... Yeah, I always kind of pulled myself back from the brink, I guess. I was always right on the edge of being... There were times where I was totally black. I blacked out a lot. I mean, that is a big, big part of my story. And it started out blacking out. I think I blacked out the first time I drank. I don't remember big portions of that evening. And people are always like, have you ever been date raped? I'm like, I'll talk about how I was drugged and raped when I was like 19. And they're like, oh, my God, was that the only time? And I'm like, I think. Like, I don't know. Is that one of the things I'm going to see when I like, as I'm approaching my death? Like, oh, man, I was date raped like seven times. I had no idea. I mean, it's not funny, but it's also kind of like, I mean, I think. I don't know. I know that just from reading about you and listening to you in other places that the date rape was a huge piece of your story and like a terrible trauma. I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm, I'm sorry that it happened. Uh, how, how a part of accelerating your addiction do you think it was? Yeah, I think it was a, a big part. Uh, there was kind of, uh, I wouldn't say normal, but... There was weed and drinking and hallucinogenics and meat and stuff before that. And then after that, there was meth and cocaine and heroin. <laughs> so everything accelerated rapidly after that happened. And, and I got into raves for a while, which was just, you know, like just fucking 90s kid in the rave scene. I hated it. I hate I. It was, I think it was called like speed or glass back in my day. It was not meth, but it was meth. And I just hated it. I hated it. I hated my brain racing when I would come down. I couldn't, I have journals of me just writing like a fucking psychopath trying to talk myself down off the ledge while my brain raced and I was coming down off speed. It was horrible. I hated it. It was not. I just didn't like that. Um, well, you have a racing brain. Speed yeah, racing no, brain I, I, don't, I don't need that at all. Um, and then I found heroin, and that's another one where I remember the first time I chased the dragon, and I was like, what the fuck? This, it was Nirvana. Like, the only, only way to describe it was Nirvana. And it was just that... I find these moments in meditation now. They're fleeting. I wish someone had taught me meditation earlier in my youth so that I would have had better coping skills. But it was definitely that blissful nothingness. And I never experienced that again. I chased that high no matter how much. Where, where were you the first time you did heroin? I was in, I was in Minneapolis or St. Paul, that, that area. What was, what was the scene? It was just me and my boyfriend at the time, and he had kind of started doing it and then got me, you know, introduced me to it. And we used to have it. 
<laughs> we used to have a FedEx, so we would like wait by the door like little puppies for the FedEx freaking truck to show up. If people are getting FedEx heroin, I'm like, I guess, I guess we were. I mean, it seems stupid. Like every time there could have been a fucking cop that showed up, but it was just. Where would they FedEx you heroin from? From LA. So he had a connect. He was the childhood actor guy. Yeah, he was like a child star at the time. And so he had connections out here. And I think it was somebody out here who got him hooked on it, some sleazebag director. And um, yeah, we would, we were like so madly in love in this like fucked up Sin and Nancy kind of way. And um, we were childhood friends too. We'd known each other a long time. And it was a very dysfunctional, very dysfunctional relationship, like insanely dysfunctional. And um, God, I really just, I, I was just so smitten with that man. And we were terrible for each other. <laughs> you know, just like, it was just a terrible combination. And he had a premiere, you know, my my first real rock bottom. It's funny, like, I, I've had many rock bottoms. It's a, it's a book I'm writing is, like, There Is No Bottom because I've had so many rock bottoms, and, and some have been in sobriety, some have been in... Some have been emotional, some have been physical. My first rock bottom with drugs and alcohol was very physical and material. I lost my health, I lost my college, I lost my apartment, I lost my job, I lost pretty much everything. It was like a true rock. And it's so psycho to me that I look back and I was reading, I recently found my first step that they made me do from my first time in rehab at age 20. And it was a thorough first step. I had to look at all of the ways that I had hurt myself emotionally, physically, mentally, family. It wasn't even a fourth step. It was just looking at how my life had become unmanageable. And I was like 19, 20, and I, I was out of control. Like, why did I ever think that I would be able to do this shit normally again? It's so, that is the insanity of this shit, is that I told myself it was just heroin that it was the problem, when it was, like, clearly not. It was you, but it was also every other yeah. drug under the sun, except for speed. Um, when the first time you did heroin, do you think that kicked in the crazy addict in you? Or do you think the crazy addict in you was already totally kicked no, in? No, I think it was already kicked in. And even in that respect, I was still, I, you know, I was like, it's that, like, I was always a, uh, a scaredy cat or, like, a cautious drug user, drug and alcohol. I'm not cautious, but not, I wasn't reckless. You know, I didn't. I don't not compared to other people I know who just like went all fucking in. There was always a part of me that was holding myself like on the edge because I wanted to be able to maintain. My whole thing was like the longer the longer I can keep my shit together, the longer I get to do this. And I didn't want to be I'd seen some of my friends end up in rehab. I had a girlfriend who crashed her car into a bunch of parked cars and was put on house arrest like I had seen people who just went went off the deep end with drugs, and so I just was trying to keep my myself together uh, enough, so I thought, until I started losing everything, and you can't, you know, you can't maintain that. But I did, I smoked and snorted it. I didn't, 
I knew that if I started shooting that I'd be done. Like, I just like needles. So I'm like, this is, I, I know that I'm going to be dead. I just knew I would be dead in like no time at all. And not even doing that, I was in the hospital on a ventilator within a year of not, of starting, of using, not even, it was like probably nine months from, it was like, I was like cruising along and then it was just fucking nosedive. Why, why were, why were you on a ventilator in a hospital? Because I, well, when I went into rehab, I couldn't breathe. I'd had untreated bronchitis for months. Yes. Yes, that sounds like a heroin thing. Yeah. I used to get it all the time. I just hadn't treated it, and, like, I wouldn't stop smoking black tar and, like, all the fucking chemicals that are on the tinfoil, not to mention cigarettes and weed and whatever else I was putting in my body, so, and crack at times, and who fucking knows. So, yeah, I had bronchitis, and it was really bad, and they had to put me on a ventilator. I don't really even remember when I went into the hospital that night when I was, like, I got, I was really dope sick. I was also just physically sick. I was having a hard time breathing. I weighed 89 pounds. I was so thin and emaciated. Um, and they were like, you were going to die. You know, the, the doctors were like, a couple more days and your body is, your body was like, is dehydrated. Not and you knew you were through though when you decided to go to rehab. You were like, I'm fucking fucked, I gotta go. I right? put myself in because I yeah. just I had that stupid like after school special moment where <laughs> it's like so cheesy. It's it's I think back on it, I'm like just how cliche of I came back from a week of debauchery in Los Angeles with my boyfriend who had a movie premiere where like it was just gnarly. I I was I was I was pulled out of. I, I was circling the drain. You know, I was doing like we went into like a paranoid delusion. We trashed hotel rooms. I fake threatened to kill myself and slit my wrist. Kind of. This is how I ended up in a psych ward. I suicidal ideation. Yeah, like it was really just for attention and from my boyfriend and I. Um, you were probably pretty miserable too. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, it was, you're doing it. You got to be pretty fucking low. It was a a big fall. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't like I was a bad kid. I was like what you would describe as a parent's wet dream. I was so good. I I had. I was on that path to Harvard. You know, I and that's what I wanted. I wanted to go to an Ivy League school. I took all kinds of extracurriculars. I was, um, testing came very easily to me. So I was just in the easily kind of in the, in the 99th percentile of everything. Every, all my report cards were A's. I was in all the AP classes. Like I just, I had so much potential getting sober. That was one of the, that was one of the hardest things I really had to reconcile and still have to forgive myself for is the lost potential and the and the time that I won't get back, particularly all the time after I went back out, after I was freaking went into rehab in my 20s when I convinced myself that I was old for some reason. And I hear this all the time from people at 23 getting sober, 24, and they're like, I'm so old. I'm like, I want to take them by their shoulders and be like, you're not old. 
Well, you were much older than you were when you were 13 and drunk. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, but that's why you not felt so old. old. You have so much life in front of you. You can still go to school. You can still, all the things you want to do, you can absolutely still do them. If I And I think when you live hard like that, you feel old. You're like, dude, I've seen some shit. And you're like 20. <laughs> but Right. And you imagine that you're older than you are. You know, it's like, it's a thing. Do you remember, though, like... When you're out there and you're using heroin and you're using tons of coke and you're, you know, skinny to the bone, but you're super, super smart. Do you remember being like, holy shit, I'm wasting my potential. I should be too smart for this. Was that a thought? you had? Um, yeah, I mean, that was the moment, the first rock bottom spiritual awakening that I had was. So I was in my apartment after that week in L.A. and I looked down into the into my like I reached to grab something and I caught my reflection in the mirror and I saw every single rib bruises everywhere like fake cuts on my wrist my cheekbones and like yellow eyes and and dead eyes that was the thing that was the most terrifying like the dead eyes that I had Mm. and I looked in the mirror and I was like what have I become I said that yelled it and then um I made some phone calls and then that was the first experience I had in rehab and I ended up going to mental ward first well ER first then mental ward um which my mom and stepdad have a lot of experience with so that's where they just like took me and then a a rehab like a, a hospital rehab detox for seven days and then after that my insurance was up but I knew that I couldn't go back to my house and I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't even done kicking drugs yet. Like that's crazy to me that it was only seven days that your insurance gives you. And so I went, took a bus into like this crack neighborhood um, in Minneapolis and put myself on general assistance. And then I ended up in this halfway house that was all women where I had been looking for a place to go. And I called and this woman in need answered the phone and I was like, what's it like there? And she was like, you ever heard of boot camp? <laughs> and I was like, perfect. That's what I need, structure. And it was what I needed. And I stayed there seven months and those women kind of saved my life. But then two months after I was out of that halfway house, I was kind of up and running again. And so it was that moment of knowing I could do better. And my life started getting better. Once I got out of the halfway house, I started going back to school. I had dreams. I was ambitious. I was I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was I couldn't forgive myself though. I could not forgive myself for not going like for just not following through on all those childhood dreams of being some Ivy League douchebag. <laughs> right, but then you also had the mix like the you you still res, re, were upset that you didn't get to live out your dream, but you still, when you got out of the halfway house, you, like, immediately were off to the races. I had different like, dreams. You know what I realized was I was... Uh, that's when it became clear to me that I was a creative. You know, I, I, it didn't, I didn't know that. Because when I was in college, I went to half a year of college before, when I was when I got all hooked on heroin, I was in college. It wasn't the college I wanted to go to. I hated it. But I was still doing well. The first semester, I got all A's. And the second semester, I flunked out, basically. And I 
had no idea what I wanted to do. I was going, I think my major was like communications and I was paying for most of it. And I was like, I don't want to pay for this shit. I really wanted to be a writer. And I'm like, I don't, you know, I did, I learned how to do that when I was like eight. You know, <laughs> I don't need to go into debt to do that and write other stuff. And I kind of felt like I could learn on my own. And then I, my life took a very different path. The path that I was on was a much more structured path, one that was laid out. I probably would have gone into marketing or something or who knows, but it was there was a path that was structured. And then there was me after rehab realizing I wanted to be a creative and that I probably should go to like New York or LA. I wanted to, I had always been in theater when I was in high school and I really loved it. So I moved out so right after I got out of rehab, I moved to <laughs> I moved to L.A. Um, not a great idea, and I wanted to be an actress. But ultimately, it was. You know what I mean. Ultimately, your path led you to where you uh, are with, with a beautiful husband and a nice career and fucking. Yeah, it's been such a long and winding road. Um, so yeah, then I went back out two months after I got out of the halfway house, which I was in for seven months in Minnesota. And I was off to the races again. I moved to LA. I was doing blow with a bunch of porn stars playing dominoes every night. Um, and trying to be an actress. So I was like doing extra work and all these shows like Buffy, the vampire slayer and Felicity and whatever else was on around that time in the early 2000. You were on Curb Your Experience, your uh, your enthusiasm. Oh yeah, that was recently. That was great. I know, but that was amazing. I forgot to even mention that. That was, that was fun. Amazing. Yeah, that was that was like such a dream, weird dream come true, and I love that show. So that was yeah, that and that was sobriety. That's enough. That's yeah, enough. I made you know, it. Are you kidding me? I made exactly. it. Exactly. Amazing. I once had a sandwich delivered to Larry David. That was as close <laughs> as I got. But you're basically in and out. You're drinking. You're smoking. You're doing coke, and you're like. Yeah, but I wasn't in and out. I mean, right, right. You're it, just in out. and out. You're yeah, just out. yeah. I was just out. I never went back. I just and I, and I was like anti AA. I wasn't just like like I said. I was like, if it works for some people, I was like, fuck that program. And everyone who's in it is an idiot. And I had to build that case around AA in order to enjoy drinking because I do think once you get AA it, or 12 step or any kind of any of the programs or whatever it is it is that cliche of like a mindful of, I mean I don't know how I know people who are like going to meetings and drinking I'm like how I would never do that I would never, ever be able to do that. It, Those stories seem like they end up in, like, a situation where the people get sober, though. You know what I mean? Like, there's a woman at a meeting I go to still. She's like, I used to go to AA drinking. And then finally, yeah. like, I realized I was lying all the time, and they get sober. It's like... Yeah, yeah. I, it's better than nothing. I just think the cognitive dissonance would... Um, would create some kind of like break in my brain and I wouldn't be able to handle it. I, I went to Narcotics Anonymous for like 18 months and like maybe 10, 11 months in, I started having a drink occasionally. Like I was dating and I would have a drink on dates and like I couldn't go to the meeting anymore because like I couldn't, right. I couldn't admit it. I didn't want to lose my time and I, I could not, the, I had that cognitive dissonance and I also just, I can't lie like that. It's just, yeah. I'm not, 
It's just, I can't lie about anything major or else I just can't say the words. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it doesn't work for me. But so what, what was the inspiration to have the experimental year? A year is a big experiment. A year isn't like, let's try a week, let's try a day. A year is, especially for somebody who's smoking weed and drinking, like what was... Every day. Yeah, so um, break it down. Well, I mean, it was really bad heartbreak. I was with that married guy and I was so heartbroken and gutted and like I said I looked around at my life and there was a lot of remnants uh and reminders of the family stuff I just kind of alluded to before just like I was working for a very dysfunctional family I was I had created I had it, it just it's it was like sh echoes and shadows of the stuff I had never really dealt with and for some reason, thank God, I mean, a lot stuck in the, those seven months. A lot stuck in order to keep me out for a long time. Like, I knew that cluttered room, cluttered mind, for instance. If I kept my place looking uncluttered, then I, I could lie to myself and say, I don't have a problem. I was like, so, so I became very, like, OCD. And As, like, a I, safety precaution, right? Yeah, I had really bad anxiety, too, that was rising before that year because I was you know you were talking about lying to yourself when I lie to myself I get really bad anxiety or when someone's lying to me now now that I'm sensitive enough to be able to tell the difference but that is something that absolutely happens and I was just lying to myself about all kinds of things and then I was in this um you know again it was a situation that wasn't good for me and I was with a man who I didn't want him to leave his family, obviously, but we were also very much in love. And um, I knew that I couldn't be like the other woman forever. And I think he probably would have happily had me in that position forever. And so I just ended it. But I was just, I mean, crushed. I could not handle it and I couldn't really even handle the experience of being left all the time it was just not good for me looking back I'm like what the hell is it I mean I wasn't thinking and I was drinking and smoking tons of weed and he had been sober mm. which I was like oh weird because I've been I think I always that the problem like you said it's not like it didn't I had great times drinking and partying after I went out I have I was thinking about it today I I heard this song um, when I was riding the bike and it totally brought me back to like those years. And what song my, was it? It was a, like a pussycat. It was like, don't you wish you, da, 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 well, don't you wish your girlfriend was hot right. like me? Right. And it reminded <laughs> me of like being in my twenties right. and drinking and these little clubs that were in my, when I was waiting tables and fell into that rut. So when I moved I got back when I got I had those good years in Santa Monica just to kind of catch everybody up. And then I moved back east and fell back into the restaurant rut that I was always in because every summer I went to my dad's town and waited tables. And then he was like, don't fall into the rut. And then I did. And he ended up um, uh, being right, uh, as he often is, frustratingly, and I was there for, I married a Belarusian. We were both raging alcoholics and we just were in that rut. And for like five years, I don't even know where the years went. It was just drinking, waiting tables, telling myself I was going to save money for that because it was a resort town. So you're in that like even more horrible rut. Total where fantasy, you're, right? 
Well, no, you tell yourself every single yeah, total fantasy. Yes, but know that you tell yourself in the in this you know off season that you're going to save money and do it differently. Yeah, that's a fantasy, and, and like you're not going to party in the summer when all the people come. And then it, you, the summer comes and you're like, let's go out on a $600, you know, dinner because I deserve this, obviously. Because I'm on vacation, too, because I live in this town and I'm making their money. And it cre- And you forget yes. that February is going to come and you're going to have no money and there's no, no one's going to be there. And that cycle went on for a while and just alcoholism, real alcoholism. I mean, I got a kidney infection. I was drinking so much, which in your 20s is not, not a good look. And that kind of went on for a while. We split up, and then I came back here when I was 27 here being Los Angeles, when I was around 27. I finally made my way back, and I had wanted to come back since I had left it in my 20s. So then I was trying to sell scripts and just living life and waiting. That's when I was – I wasn't waiting tables. I was teaching yoga. I waited tables when I first got back, fell immediately into the – doing drugs, having threesomes, and, like, being debaucherous almost instantly. I think I lasted, like, six or seven months, and then one morning I woke up with a woman in my bed and no clue where my car was, and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. Not because the woman was in my bed. She was lovely. It was because I was like, too much. oh, no. It was too much. Because once you're in the problem, and, like, I, like the point I've been trying to make, the problem is it wasn't that that had filled with, you know, recovery ruined everything, but it did always kick in when those birds were chirping and I felt like shit or when I couldn't find my car, which was many times in all those years of drinking, many times I lost my car and called and reported it stolen. It's fucking embarrassing. And... (laughs) It's embarrassing. Like they laughed at they they laughed at me at the Santa Monica police station. They're like, "No, you didn't. You didn't lose your car. Your car wasn't stolen." I was like, "No, it's gone." They're like, "You probably lost it." I was like, "No." They're like, nine times out of ten, somebody it's somebody who lost their car. It's not because they got it stolen. Yeah, this was, they la- that, laughed at me. That was probably the the whole dude, where's my car thing. That somebody lost the yeah. car and then. But you were you had a dream, right? You were a dreamer. You know, my great Bridget Phetasy quote is, if you don't chase your dreams, your dreams chase you. So you went yeah, out they do. You went out there to write, only you were still using. And I was. And you were writing. And you, but I was still writing. I was still chasing all those dreams. I was, I mean, I look, I, I'm re, revamping a script right now that I wrote. And I, it's now 10 years later with this idea that I refuse to give up on. And I wrote a whole screenplay and a rock and roll like whiskey filled binge writing session i i still was being creative and i was still i started doing stand-up i was the thing that inspired that year was just a collective uh i would say emotional bottom like a bad emotional bottom where i was being triggered from all my past stuff i hadn't looked at i was heartbroken and i looked around in my life and i knew that something wasn't right and luckily I had the wherewithal to know that drinking and weed I just I remember being like I just need clarity I need some fucking clarity and so I took away booze and weed 
And I think because I told myself I'd only do it for a year, it made it way more manageable. You know, I, I, I having that end was like, I can do this. I'm just going to prove to myself that I can do it. Was it like, I can do this? Or was it like, what can this offer me? Like, like I, I didn't... No, it wasn't like that. I really just wanted clarity. And I didn't even know what that looked like. I just knew that I had to take away drugs and alcohol. So for the first 90 days... I did. I felt pretty good. I think I had a pink cloud, which I never had in this sobriety at all. I would say now I'm on a pink cloud, but I did not have one for the first. The first two years, I was like, some guy ran into me and he said, "Oh my god, you're still sober." I thought <laughs> you'd never make it. He was like, "You were like a fucking goth chick when I saw you. You were taking a two-year cake and you were miserable, and I was, right. or like a year cake. I was just miserable. Uh, not a vision for you." And so I think I just, I hit that emotional bottom. And then weirdly, the guy that I was with, he started smoking weed again and he's never stopped, <laughs> which I feel kind of bad about. But Why? Did you, did like you a, get him on it or what? Well, we, yeah, I mean, we, he had been like a big stoner and then I was like, ah, oh, don't be such a pussy. And then I think he started smoking again when we were going, it wasn't with me. It was just me kind of mocking him. And then... Um, we were going through our me trying to like exit out of the relationship, and I guess he started smoking again, and I I stopped. I was like, how ironic! I stopped smoking, and you started, and I think he still is. But so yeah, I, I cleared out, and then stuff started coming up. I started going back to therapy with my old therapist that I had seen back when I was in my hometown where I got certified in yoga when I was getting out of my marriage. And that was like, I'm that classic, like part, you know, chapter three, where it's like, I tried everything. I tried everything, like went to therapy, got certified in yoga, traveled, did all the thing, moved a million geographics, a million. I mean, at a certain point, I had to really, really reconcile the fact that it was me. <laughs> how, square that how soon after the experimental year were you using was it like next day was it like 365 oh, days oh I planned it right. I mean I basically went 13 months for good measure I saved all my money and then I bought a one way ticket to Australia and I was like I'm not gonna go to Australia and not drink right that just made no sense to me at all was that and was that the sex ashram period we're not yet. Yeah. That what? Yeah. What is the sex ashram? I was leading period? into it. Tell, tell us about that. I mean, I was sober there because... It was an ashram. There, yeah. And other than when I went and bought, had to say goodbye to my ashram sex buddy and then bought two bottles of wine, drank an entire bottle by myself in a park, came back to the ashram, was crying hysterically, and then the guru made me share all my wine. The re I guess I had three or four bottles and he made me share it with everybody else in the ashram. Was that like the punishment? It's like you have to give a that piece of like gum to weird, everybody in the class. Yeah, it was weird. I was he like knew weirdly that that was worse than anything he could do. I was like, don't take my booze away. He was like, no, we need a drink. We we've been we've been sober for too long in the ashram, and Bridget finally. Well, I mean, that was the whole like um, that was Osho's whole thing, right? It was like Zor Zorba the Buddha. So it wasn't just austerity; it was also living life and debauchery and sex with everyone and all that stuff. I didn't, I wasn't partaking in the kind of swapping that lots of people were in the ashram and was encouraged. I just had my one. It was an Osho my one place? Buddy. It was an, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. 
That's I crazy. didn't know this. When does, I know. That movie's like the greatest fucking series in the history well, of Netflix. I, that's how I ended up writing about this was because my roommate was watching the documentary and they were doing that exercise, the breathing exercise, and I was like, oh, I've done that. She was like, of course you have. <laughs> that's so like, tits funny. flying everywhere. She's like, why am I not surprised? I'm like, I've done that. I'm like, what is this? And then I was like, oh, my God. Wow. This is exactly, it was a, like, offshoot of that. You know, obviously, it's way, t- I'm too young to be a member of the original, but it was it was an uh, inspired. We had to like listen to the Osho recordings at night, and Amazing. yeah, Amazing. <laughs> nuts. So so yeah, I started drinking, and I I remember very distinctly after that year, I did start feeling better, and I was achieving things that I wanted to achieve. Like I put my mind to traveling, and then I figured out a way to do it, and I started feeling good just better than I had felt and then I I went out <laughs> Jesus Christ I mean I <laughs> like, as the, the night that I drank it, it's just so classic it's classic as my friends would say classic Bridget I got I had I intentionally was like I'm drinking tonight you know I was very intentional about it and I hadn't been in any recovery meetings in like three months because at that point I had left, gone to the farm where I white knuckled. It was very hard because everyone was having so much fun. And then Bernie Man and all these things. So I, I was prime, primed and ready. And I went out to dinner with um, my, my like aunt and uncle, the same ones, and some of their friends right. and some of their friends' kids who were in their like young, early 20s. And <laughs> I drank a margarita. I had an, and I remember distinctly like that depressive. It was like something energetically shifted immediately. I felt it. I was so sensitive to all the vibes, and I felt I feel like- my whole energetic field lowered. You know, I just felt that depressive aspect of alcohol almost immediately. It was like a dark. A darkness took over my spirit. It's your aunt and uncle. They trigger you terribly. It's like no, yeah, no, it's no, like, no. Did they bring tinfoil just in case? Like <laughs> it wasn't them at all. They're like whatever. They're they were they're very happy. I'm sober now. I'm just obviously. playing. I'm just playing. It wasn't your aunt and uncle. Um, no, they probably are somewhat triggering, but they they're great. And my, I ended up like making out with this 20 year old kid in his car. <laughs> Like that night, it was like instant, just off off to the races. I was hammered in almost immediately. Like I ended up having three or four margaritas. Just add alcohol and it all, drunk, and drunk yes. drove yeah. immediately. Right. Yeah, I was just made out with some twenty year old kid. I was like thirty one years old or whatever. Um, I was like, I remember when you were a child, and then just I went to Australia and I was having bad anxiety. I remember after New Year's. In Australia, I had like a panic attack. I was so hungover and I kept on drinking. And yeah, I was partying the whole two years that I was traveling around the world. I traveled for a year, came back, um, went back to the farm, was using that time. It was a 
disaster. The whole thing was a disaster. Was there a piece of you the whole time being like, wait a second, like I know that I was on to something and I want this to work, but it's not working? Were you conflicted inside? or Something? Yeah, it's weird because I only did like six months of going to meetings. And I remember, I don't remember much of anything from those meetings. Although I do remember the first one I went to was a woman's meeting and the woman who was speaking told my story and it was really intimate and something clicked about AA that hadn't before. I Something opened up in me. Something clicked about 12-step or I was like, wow, this is very um, peaceful. I felt like a sense of peace washed over me and I've never felt that. Not even as a child did I feel that. Um, that was the question my now husband, who we met in the rooms, asked me one night that like blew me away the night we first met. He was like, what was the, he's a therapist and he asks really poignant questions. And he, he was like, what was the nature of your, we were just talking about sobriety and before we got sober and he was like, what was the nature of your, like, how did you feel before you ever even started using and I started using so young. It, it never even occurred to me to think about what the overall state of my emotional landscape looked like before I even picked up a drink or a drug. And I was like fear. I was always in fear. We moved a lot. There was a lot of fighting in my family. It was just like I don't remember feeling calm. And that was that moment that I experienced in that women's meeting, it was like so free of fear. Right. And I never had that feeling. It was so foreign to me. I didn't even know what it was. It was like a feeling of safety. You felt safe. Yeah, I did. And I was hearing these people talking and I was like, oh, maybe there's something to this. And then went back out. I didn't hate on it. I just was out. I mean, I was, uh, I was running around the world and I'm lucky, I always joke, I'm lucky I didn't end up in Locked Up Abroad, like doing drugs in countries that you will get hanged for doing drugs. Such a, good, <laughs> such a great show, though. Yeah, terrifying. It is like a cautionary yeah, tale. Um, and I ended up coming back from all those travels, being completely lost, not sure if I wanted to even be in LA, not sure if I wanted to be pursuing the life I had been pursuing, not sure who I was, not sure about anything. And then got a job at waiting tables in Pacific Palisades. And I had just been in India. So there was like a massive cognitive dissonance in like going from being in India to waiting on the people in the Pacific Palisades. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. Still was drinking, started doing tons of Molly. I had like a very druggy summer that summer after not really doing, I hadn't really been doing that many drugs. I did when I was traveling and then came back and I had a very druggy party summer. That was the year I went to Coachella and like, passed out in VIP because I just basically OD'd on Molly and went down like a disco ball and or just went down like a like a bowling ball and took out these like Australian ironically women um and they were like oh my god you were having a seizure and my friends who I was with were like ah it was a disco nap she's fine (laughs) (laughs) like these are friends I've partied with since high school they knew me they're like ah she's fine But that was one of those moments, like, coming to and having the cops standing around me. I was like, whoa, okay, not a good look. 
asking me what time it was. And they're like, all right, bye. Luckily, it was like a hard reset on my brain when I went down. I really think my brain was like powering down. <laughs> we need a hard reset. So that led into a summer. And then I went back east. I mean, speaking of triggering, because my cousin was opening a restaurant and um, or she was helping open a restaurant and they needed wait, wait staff for the shoulder season, which is that season in between the summer and the, the, the dead season where it's still super busy, but all the college kids have gone back to college. And so you're understaffed and still just as busy as the summer. So I went, fell back into all my old habits of drinking and doing blow and sleeping with ex-boyfriends that I knew were bad for me. It was like instantly back into a rut that I hadn't been in. And I talked to, I hadn't talked to my mom in six years. I had lunch with her and we started talking, which naturally brought up all kinds of shit that I hadn't been looking at. And I was on the plane on the way home after a week of just trying to get out because I was on a, a pass. My friend was a flight attendant, so I, I couldn't get out of the East Coast. So like all the flights were booked. And... I was just bumping around. My sister in Boston didn't want me to stay. Fair enough. I, I just was a, a disaster. I had like, I was supposed to go do this podcast, and I ended up getting wasted on the train and getting off in New York City and partying with this guy. And then it was just same shit, same shit as always. And I was on the plane, and I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do heroin. That that's what I'm doing when I land in LA. And I was at like a really in a really bad mental place. I basically wanted to kill myself. Do you remember that feeling any any more than that like like you hadn't done heroin in in what 15 years or something? Yeah, right? no, nothing. So like so like what was the thought? Your everything has gone to total shit. Was it like everything's so fucked up, I might as well get the thing that I wanted in the first place or I need absolute oblivion? Like what was it? Both. I mean, it was both. It was just, it was, everything's so fucked up and I might as well get what I wanted, like you said, because that's always the drug of choice that I'm not doing, ultimately. And also, I felt so much shame and so much, like, the emotions that were coming up and the memories associated with those emotions were way too much for me to process and I wanted oblivion. And I don't know. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to cop. I'm just, but I wanted to die. That was really it. I was like, I'm, I knew that that decision was essentially just hoping for suicide. You know, I was like, I'm going to get enough dope and I'm just going to OD and, you know, do it proper like a junkie and go out and like be a real junkie and die. And that was the plan. I got off the plane. I don't know again, like moments of grace that I don't fully understand. And I have a lot of strange relationships with God just being raised Catholic. So um, some days I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm in it. And other days I'm like, there's no God. <laughs> this is bullshit. And I'll kind of nod my head along, just like go along with things and not rock the boat. But there are enough, moment, enough crazy moments where I can't explain why why there was those windows or why I pulled myself kind of off the cliff. And I decided to go for a hike, and I was toxic. I was hiking up this mountain. I don't know why I decided to do this. I was like, all right, well, before you go cop dope, you should definitely go for a hike and maybe pause, you know, just take. 
And I went for this hike and I was just toxic. I was like uh, booze coming out of my pores, coke, drugs. And at the top, I do remember there was like some moment of clarity or spiritual awakening or something. And I was like, I need to go to a meeting. And that was just, so I came down, I called my friend who happened to be the mother of the kid that lived with me, but they were also in recovery. And I was like, hey, is there a meeting? It was this huge meeting in Brownwood. I barely remember what the speaker was. I All I know is that my friend was there and she was with this woman who would ultimately become my sponsor. She had five years. She got sober the same age as me. She wasn't she was divorced. She didn't have kids. We were just the same, like had been all over the world, was well-traveled and partied. And it wasn't horrible, but it was pretty bad. Like it was bad, really bad. It's bad enough. Um, but yeah, I think I could have justified staying out for a long time. Like people said to me, you know, in my family, it's like, you didn't even get a DUI. Like what's the fucking problem, right. Bridge? And... But you knew, you knew though. I mean, that's the beauty of this story. It's like you knew... You, you went on the hike because you knew, like, regardless of if God is, like, fucking saying go on a hike or you just go on a hike and that is God. You know what I mean? Like, that that puts you yeah. in, that, in that moment. Um, and then it caught on from there. Like, it just, you went. And I'm really grateful I had her as a sponsor. She just, it does give me the perspective of how, my, how important that person can be, the right person in early sobriety. She was really helpful, and she just got me, and she wasn't very strict. She was kind of very much like, God, it's like I'm here as much or as little as you need me. If you, but I did work a program, and I worked a great program my first year. I, I had tons of commitments. I threw myself into it reluctantly. And, um, and then the second year, I got away from it, and I was pretty dry. And it's another experience. I'm very grateful I had to go through because I now know what dry really looks and feels like. And I don't know that I would have without that. And then I, and around year three, I did 90 and 90 again. And I just realized like, this has to be a lifestyle. Like I, I at what point though, like did Bridget Phetasy famous person or person of note kick in? Like, where did that happen around this? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I'm famous, but I I um I started replacing, you know, Twitter is a big part of why I got sober weirdly because I got on Twitter around April of 2013 and I loved it and I saw clearly how I found my tribe. I was like, "Oh, this is where all the writers and the comedians are." And I I since I was basically unemployed and waiting for this restaurant to open in LA, um, I was working with the one in the Palisades and they were opening a sister restaurant in Culver city and they didn't, they weren't planning on being open until the fall. So I had shifts, but not really enough. And I, it, I was just a disaster still. And I was do, taking like improv classes and I was on, I found Twitter and just started using it and I loved it, but I was always joking about what an alcoholic I was constantly. And I remember one moment before I went back East to work in the restaurant that fall being like, how many jokes about, even on Twitter, I was like, how many times am I going to joke about this before I realize it's not really a joke? 
It was like a place, it was a place for self-reflection. You saw yourself. How many times could you say yeah. the same thing before you heard yourself say it? It's interesting. I was like, this isn't great. Um, and so I quit drinking in 2013, but I didn't quit Twitter. And a lot of my addictive tendencies went into Twitter, obviously. And I just really, I was like, well, I have this job and I don't, and I'm just going to build an audience here. Um, because I feel like these are, I can grab people and I can actually Twitter. I like, because you can kind of be yourself and see who somebody is. Even if it's like a caricature of yourself, you, you're at least being kind of honest about who you are in many respects. I'm so bad at, at, at the time. It's like, I suck at it. I can't put fucking 40 characters together at all. Like I'm so yeah. bad at it. It's like, it makes me it's, crazy. Everyone has their social media. I think. I have not, they, I'm not good at any, but my question is, um, with the idea of self-seeking, right? Like, I found recently, like, I'm on social media self-seeking. You know what I mean? Like, I'm on social media, like, looking for myself in other people's mm. heads and other people's likes and all of that shit. It's like, and, and nobody likes my social media. Like, my social media sucks. You're like this major social media person working this program does that become a thing? Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I've written a lot about this. I mean, I wrote the 12 steps for Twitter and I wrote early on in like 2013. I was like, oh, I, I read all the studies about it before I even went on. I, I was just like, what is this? And it's like, oh, it's 100% a drug. So I'm like, I know a drug when I feel one and this is 100% a drug. And so I very knowingly went into it, but in some ways it was like harm reduction. Right. Like, well, it's, it's better than doing drugs for me. And maybe I'll build an audience and, and hone my writing craft in the process. And the other night I was at a gathering with a bunch of people and I looked around, I'm like, all of these friends came through Twitter. As much as I joke about that place being a hell site, it has connected me to people like you. It's, it's where I get many of my podcast guests it has given me wings and many, it, I just took right to it. And, and then um, I had a couple of years of explosive growth just because I was not speaking. Like I was that left wing person who was pushing back against the left, which more and more people are doing. And that's whatever, like, I, I'm glad to see more people are just kind of entering the independent space because it was hard to do when the other guy was in charge. And so I understand why people would, I, I understand all of it, but because of that, that situation and that, that actually comes after really what started happening was I kept on writing. I kind of gave up on, you know, there's a whole conversation to be had around getting sober and then your creativity. I really thought I'd never write again. I was like, I'm never going to, I couldn't find it. I thought I killed it. I was like, I guess, I guess I was only creative because I was drinking and smoking weed. I had no idea how to write sober at all because I would write when I was drunk and stoned. I, I just didn't know how to do it. And it was also very triggering to try and do while I was sober, and I really sucked at it. But then I just kept going, and somebody put me in touch with a, an editor at Playboy, and then that led to my job at Playboy, where I was writing as a columnist. It was the first piece I ever got paid to write since I was writing this column back in my hometown, which I wrote when I was in my like blackout years. Um, 
waiting tables, I did manage to like write a weekly column for 50 weeks. When you got into Playboy, were you were you in sobriety at that point? I was. So yeah, so it's like things really started clicking. You things know? did start clicking. Yeah, I started seeing pretty. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, it was hard for me not to say, "Oh, wow, I have." I see very material. Um, not even material, just uh, like my relationships are so much better with my family. I, w- I went home after, I didn't go home for three years because talk about triggering. And when I did, I was like, oh, I was the problem. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all the people around me. It was me. Because once I was present and open, my relationships were are just so much better. And I ended up... Um, Getting that job, and then in 2015, when things everything became political and polarized, um, I just was taking work and kind of pushing back. And I, I really, this is the book I'm writing now. Like I just kind of stumbled like a drunken idiot, but not drunk, completely sober, into the culture wars. You know, I kind of had no idea what I was getting into. Truly, had no clue or concept, and I was. It was almost like this Gen X woman wakes up from a 15-year blackout, mm-hmm. which is True. not a lie. Which is real, yeah. Yeah, and then starts writing as if those 15 years didn't happen. Well, it's like it's like a science fiction story. It's to, it's like it's like a it's like an old school movie. You wake up in in a brave new world. And like, yeah, and I'm saying things like real man and like uh, just things that I thought were okay, which are were not okay anymore. And so suddenly I was on, very online and very much in the mix of all this stuff. And now I'm, uh, yeah, I just, um, I got thrown into the culture wars and then started making fun of the left, which then made me this kind of, I guess, like somewhat right wing darling yes. for a minute. I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of the people. The left hates me. Um, and, I, and I still love them. That's the funny thing. I, like, still have so much love in my heart for just all people across the political spectrum. I really think everyone, I try to ascribe pot, good intentions to everybody. And I think everybody really just has a different idea of how to save the world. <laughs> and I think that's probably something that came to you in that experience when you're in that fucking shitty halfway. It's the same thing. Yeah. We're all yeah. like just people like with souls yeah. and hearts and shit. I, I, I find it interesting because I read your Twitter and uh, and I, you know, th- I, there was a while that I didn't read your Twitter because I was so annoyed because you kept putting me off um, coming on oh, the yeah. show. So I was, like, I, I was like, I can't look at it anymore. I'm, I'm too, too triggered that she doesn't want to come on. <laughs> but, um, but I think I, I'm always amazed that you care about stuff. Like, I find that I'm so apathetic about fucking everything. I don't care or I don't care about what I think. Like, I don't even look for my opinion in a situation unless it's like, how do I get through the day? Like, do I hate my job? Do I like raising kids? Like, whatever. It's like, but you, you're you so interested in so many things. And I think that's so amazing. How do you, how, do, how does that work? How do you stay interested? Why am I so apathetic? What's wrong with me? What do you have Nothing's going on? Nothing's wrong with you. I mean, A, I don't have kids, and I think that's a big difference. I that kids take an enormous amount of creative and emotional energy and just physical energy. They're just a lot of work. They're mm-hmm. tons and tons of work. And so I could imagine that your bandwidth for caring would be limited. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. 
I have bandwidth to care about things because I don't have a small creature that's dependent on me to stay alive and learn how to, you know, navigate the world. That is a the ultimate act of creativity is a child and raising a child. And it takes an enormous amount of energy. And I would imagine that, in, you know, in recovery, you're already... It's already, like, I feel like I wake up behind the eight ball, you know? <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I wake up and it's like, that was one of my biggest resentments was realizing, A, that I was insane when I first got sober. I thought it was me doing all the drugs and alcohol, but no, it just is me. And B, how many things it takes for me to be, like, a normal person. I'm like, why can't I just wake up, like, my freaking amazing uncle who I totally look up to who whistles when he wakes up and is totally positive and goes on his walk and like is super structured and 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 I don't wake up like that I wake up and it's like I'm a piece of shit really (laughs) I'm a fucking loser I need to yeah I'm fat I'm ugly I'm old I mean the self-talk is so toxic it is just and I woke up like that in some ways I wonder too if it isn't just like I don't know anything else because I woke up that way so often for decades. I mean, two decades of my life was waking up and being like, where am I? Why am I hungover? I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. It's like almost in my brain to be, to be self-loathing like that. And I'm not sure which came first. So I still have to wake up and be grateful and, and pray and try and, you know, relieve me of the bondage of self. That is, that is the deal. That's the thing. Do you have a, do you have like a good spiritual practice? Sometimes. Right. Sometimes it's better than others. You know, I, I would, I would say that if I've learned anything and I really am very grateful that I had a, my, that first sponsor, she's gone now, but we're actually back in touch cause she left the country. But, um, she always said, you are working exactly the program you need to be working as long as you're sober. Right. Well, and that really stuck with me. So she, cause I would be so hard on myself. I'm like, I'm off the beam. I'm not meditating every morning. And she's like, okay, well then you're learning something or you'll learn something about this time. As long as you don't drink or use, and we had to add or kill yourself, no matter what, then you are working exactly what you need. You're learning what you need to be learning. But that's the hustle in you. Like my program isn't good enough. My my YouTube isn't big enough. My Twitter isn't big enough. Like, is that I, the hustle or is that the addict? It's the chicken and the egg, right? It's the. Is I mean, it, I'm. Isn't it? I'm. Though? I don't know. I'm really dealing with a lot of this right now, being that, um, feeding the algorithm feels an awful lot like chasing that high. It is. And I have now, I mean, I joked with Dumpster Fire, the show that I do, because it's basically my Twitter come to life, essentially, and making fun of the culture, making fun of everyone and myself and taking the piss out of everything. But I'm like, I became, this is like somebody who's doing meth, going to cooking it literally in my garage. You know, now I'm. You're producing it. I've attached myself to the news cycle with something that is making me money. It's like I can justify it. Now I can justify my addiction. Well, I've got to be on Twitter. I how else am I going to do this show? It's my living. But it's like but that's a weird it's a weird conundrum to be in 
because it's working. You know, you have a certain amount of freedom, but then the freedom costs this crazy addiction. And it's like, what, you know, how does that work? How do you weigh that out? And it's very challenging as someone, we're all in this place where we're our own brand now, which is as gross as that is the truth. And when I get subscribers or lose subscribers, it's hard not to take that personally. Right. Because it's, in some ways, it might be personal. It might be literally, I tweeted something and fuck you, Bridget, I'm not subscribed anymore. Or even worse than that, I don't like you. You know? Yeah, I don't like and you. And that hurts, right? It could be personal. And as somebody that's, and also the feeling of it's never enough and looking at everybody else and seeing what they're making, like all of this stuff as an addict it, you know what they say. It's like fame and money and all that stuff. It's like the worst thing for an addict. And um, I have, I don't, I have a, uh, I, I'm very grateful for where I should be, where I am, should yeah, be as yeah, perfect. perfect. I'm grateful for the drive I have. I think it saved me. I'm grateful for where I am. But I look around and I'm like, well, why aren't I Joe Rogan? Right, no, exactly. You know, like, I'm, I'm, obviously, right. I should be way bigger than I am and, and chasing that. And I am doing what I love. But when I, it's very hard for me to stay in that space of this is the moment. I'm creating this. And the minute I step outside of that into results, which is basically followers, likes, compare and contrast, compare and despair... All of that shit is is very bad for me. And it's it's so baked into the cake of what I'm doing. Dude, this is so good, though. Like, what you're saying. It's like, because I follow you, right? And I'm like, oh, shit, Bridget Phetasy is a big deal. Oh, shit, I watch Bridget Phetasy on Joe... I watched you on Joe Rogan today. I'm like, and I'm listening to, to fucking Walkins Welcome, and I'm watching Dumpster Fire, and, like, I feel... I have the exact same problem that you have, except nobody likes me on social media. So, like, people listen to the show, and, like, we have a nice community and stuff, and I'm like, what, I'm too stupid to do it. Like, and, and my show is total niche, and I'm like, well, why isn't my super niche show about shooting heroin <laughs> the size of Joe Rogan, and how could it be? <laughs> but so I really appreciate you saying that stuff. Well, and also recognizing that it's only a small percentage that become, like, are at that point, you know? Of course. And people are probably looking at you and they're like, who's this dopey idiot? And he's getting sponsors. And like, they're, that's why it's so, and, and really, that's one of the things I'm really having to work hard on is equating my self-worth with likes, followers, and money. And we live in a world where attention equals money. And I've been writing about this for like a decade now. And I knew that this was coming and I knew that the, this would be the reality. And the article I read yesterday in the New York Times that Taylor Lorenz wrote about like the new economy of letting people pay to like make decisions for. I mean, it's getting so much crazier than. What's it all. that? What is that? Like, for instance, I'm a quote unquote influencer and I'm like, hey, guys. Should, should I wear this red shirt on Dumpster Fire or this blue one? And then the more you pay, the more say you have in my decision. Wow, so yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's nuts. It's fucking sick. How could you not get addicted to that? Let me ask you this, okay? This is a moral question. It's a moral question and it's a time question, right? I know I have a friend who has a Patreon account and he has a tier on his Patreon, a $100 tier, and he calls them. 
Okay. Yeah, I did that. You did it. How long did you do it for? I mean, it became unsustainable. I basically had to cap it, and I it was unsustainable because you, I can't be on the phone twenty hours a week. So people like, and it's people paying you to be friends with you. People paying, yeah, just you. to be basically just like to. We talk about like politics or what their family or whatever. It was always very just like yeah, a chill conversation. Why'd you get out of it? I, it just is not sustainable. I can't scale that. I mean, purely business decision. How do I scale that? And by scale, I mean you can. I understand. Yeah, you can only. You don't have enough time in the day. Well, I can't scale individual conversations. I have eight hours in a day, which means I could do eight calls. Now, I can scale dumpster fire. I can scale content that I put on my subscriber platform because it doesn't matter. I post it once and it goes to however many people subscribe and hopefully more will. I can scale my podcast because that's another piece of content that you can just keep growing. But it's not... I like what am I going to be on the phone eight hours a day exactly with x amount of people so no it it was really just a business decision and also I didn't like having that much of my um my income being dependent on like high rollers (laughs) I'm sorry my daughter's up showing me her test here say hello to Bridget Fetissey she's a big YouTube star hi I'm not a YouTube star nice to meet you I like your guys. Nice to meet you too. She got 95 on her science Ooh. fair project. What was the What was the project about? It was about um, deciding which food my guinea pigs like to eat the most. Oh really? What do they like to eat the most? <laughs> oh, dried papaya. Yeah. Dried papaya. Interesting. Whereas, no, I'm very proud of you. Very Thank proud. you. I got the second highest grade in my class. Wow! I love your glasses, by the way. Thank you. Those are great. Thank you. I'm very proud of you too. Bye. Keep Thank keep you. up with the science. Okay. <laughs> Women in STEM. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. Yeah, that and is it's amazing. Like, it's way better that she comes up while we're talking about like platforms and unfulfillable. Yeah, like, yeah, than drug things. stories. Yeah, <laughs> like, like being in the Ramada Inn or whatever. Before I, I don't, I, you've been incredibly generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Can I? Can I please? send you a short dopey fan email that you can read and then we'll wrap up the show would you do that yeah what what do i do i'll just send it to you really fast okay i got it i'm supposed to read it yeah it should say hey dave at the front but who cares um my name is jana i'm an 18 year old from kalamazoo michigan i heard about dopey on npr so i'm pretty late to the game i'm on episode 227 i wanted to write you because i've been smoking weed since i was 16 Since then, I've smoked every single day, getting as high as I can. I've struggled with depression since I started high school, and in general, I've been pretty miserable or discontent, you could say. I've tried antidepressants and therapy, but I still end up in the same spot. I know I have an addictive personality because of the way that I consume anything that will fuck me up, but um, when I buy Dispos, what are are those? I'm assuming it's disposable weed vapes. Oh, okay. I see. Those weren't even around when I was smoking. The kids these days, when I buy dispos, I finish them faster than my friends who actually vape. I don't vape like that. When I have access to alcohol, I drink till I black out. 
but I like weed more and it's easier to get, so I mostly smoke. I'm like, did I write this email? <laughs> I know, it seems perfect. Uh, basically, I was wondering if I can go to an AA even though I'm just a big stoner. It seems kind of stupid to me, but I really want to make a change in my life, and I'm open to trying anything at this point. Yeah, answer the question for Jonna. This is a celebrity answering on dopey email. Well, I will say that um, a person very close to me was a massive stoner and saw me get sober and asked if they could go to an AA meeting, and I told them yes. And they now have over two years sober, and once they went, realized they were also an alcoholic, they just smoked so much weed, they didn't really... It, it, had they been able to drink the way they wanted to, or um, they, they're a mom, they're she's a mom, and so she couldn't she couldn't really drink. She had to like keep keep it together, and the the meetings were great. She kind of identified as um, like a, a. I always say when I when I share, I say I am an alcoholic who used other substances alcoholically. And I got that from my friend and because it's all the same. It's all the same. And I do, I've been to MA meetings and I just I was like laughing. It was like they started late. There were tons of great snacks. It was completely disorganized. I was like, this is like a parody of what I would imagine a stoner meeting to be. So there are there just aren't as many resources. And I think that you know, my answer to that question is, is yes, you can go um, because I think all, all of the substances, people are pretty open to it unless you're like at one of those super strict old timers meetings where they're like, this is an AA meeting. We're only talking about alcohol here. I just don't think enough people are talking about weed addiction because it's freaking real. That was the hardest thing for me to quit. Me too. I mean, I, I found myself begging my daughter's mother to take me back on the contingency that I could smoke weed. That was my big moment. I'm like writing her an email and like sweating at age 41, having been on every drug in the world and begging for custody and for us being a family, but only if I could smoke weed. And that's when I realized like I had to stop. And I, it was my identity. You yeah, know what I me mean? too. Like, it was my identity. And, and it's such an interesting time because... You have cannabis recovery. Yeah. Like meth people or, or, or heroin addicts are, are smoking weed as yeah. their recovery. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, so you have like Jana, who's like fucking scared of being a pothead as addictively. And then you have, there's a ton of dopey listeners who are like smoking weed in recovery. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it's like crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, That's a, that. Yeah. Marijuana maintenance. And again, it's, it is somewhat harm reduction if, you are like if you're if you are a meth head or a junkie and you're you're intravenously using drugs and now you can smoke weed and that's keeping you off of that i don't begrudge anyone who's doing that um i think that there that this is one of the problems with kind of 12 step is there is a certain judgmental portion of the population you know, I don't care. Like a, a friend recently confessed to me that they tried um, microdosing because they were dealing with some like heavy trauma. And I'm like, there's so much science around this stuff. Like I have no problem with, I don't have a problem. There's some people who are like nothing from the neck up. And my friends and I talk about how many people have killed themselves in sobriety because of some antiquated notion that you can't have like, you know, like 
antidepressants. And it says very clearly, like, we're not doctors, you know? Right, exactly. And, and I mean, I, I think, like, I go to an AA meeting, and I don't mean to break traditions and whatever, but I go to an AA meeting, and I, I barely drink. You know what I mean? I share about being a drug addict at the AA meeting. And I always was like, well, why can't there be an EA, like, everything anonymous? Yeah. Like, like what? And then, and then we kind of got to this place where, you know, my partner who died he would always defend people on Suboxone or people on methadone, and I would always make fun of them because I thought it was funny. You know, like, and I also could never stay off of other drugs when I was on medicated-assisted treatment. And um, after he died, I was like, I need to embrace these people because they have nice lives and their lives are better because they do this thing, and I can't begrudge them their happiness as opposed to misery. And then a, a listener wrote in about what she called she said, Dopey is at the vanguard of the alt-recovery movement. Oh, I like and that. I, and I was like, holy shit, we have a movement, you know, the alt-recovery movement, which states, we've decided the alt-recovery movement states that there's an infinite number of ways to get sober, um, and there's an infinite number of ways to, to, to have a happy life yep. as long as you have a happy life and you're engaged. Like, Fucking AA scares so many people. God scares so many people. Yeah, yeah. You know, people feel so left out. Yeah. They, because, like, they're scared to be a junkie who goes to an AA meeting or a, a pothead who goes to an NA meeting or whatever. And, like, we need to create, like, a, like serious anti-stigma stuff where people are included. Like, because you're happy. You know what I mean? Like, you did it because, like, you wanted to click your brain in and your straight anus came back, it's right? An, it's an interesting discussion, though, because I would not... I think recovery and sobriety are two different things. So if you are speaking about sobriety and you're high on weed, I don't consider you sober. Like... They're two different. That's the problem with this is is like the the spectrum of recovery is wide, and we should be casting a wide net. Now, are you sober if you're smoking weed every day? No, right. that's just a fact. Right. Like that is just a fact. Are you sober if you're on antidepressants? Yes, I would say you are. I think that that's something that's like a different level of psychopharmacology. But are you sober if you're microdosing for depression? I but that's something that you do once. Like that's not something you're constantly. You're not. So, you're not sober when you're actually. But I don't even think. I don't even think it affects right. you like that. Like uh, it doesn't. I'm yeah, it's not right. like you're tripping. You're just. Okay. Are you sober? Are you sober when you're prescribed Xanax for anxiety? Oh, Xanax. I mean. I'm asking. I mean, <laughs> you know, these yeah, are they questions. are hard questions. They are. I. You know? I, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for me, I had to stay very far away from all that stuff because that Xanax in particular is like heroin without any of the pesky side effects. <laughs> it's like, that's a very slippery yeah, slope it. for me. <laughs> like, I pills scared the shit out of me. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I guess it really is a good question. Like, you have to kind of define what... These are hard words to define. What's recovery? What's sobriety? Sobriety for me might look different than sobriety for somebody else. But do I want to hear somebody who's high as fuck talking about what it's like to be sober? I don't think that I personally would find that very helpful because it's just going to be like... I mean, my friend makes fun of me all the time because we were up at the comedy store one night and she was like, um, 
yeah, I quit drinking. And I was like, cool, that's amazing. And, and we used to party hard together. And she's like, and I was like, are you still smoking weed? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, then you're not sober. <laughs> and she was so mad. Right, she's like, I was right. so fucking pissed. But then she realized that she wasn't. You know, now she is like sober, sober. So I guess there's like sober and then there's sober, sober. Exactly. There's sober and then there's sober, sober. And it's really all one man's ceiling is another man's floor shit. It's like, right. just, it's like, fuck it. You know what I mean? Like, I know this, these people and they're like devoted listeners and I love them. And I, I know that they went through the worst shit. And, and like, I think it's funny that you said exactly what I think, which is, wow, you're all high on weed and you're sober. But like, who am I to say? Like, what am I going to do? You know, let them. No, I don't care. I, I don't care. That's why I think there needs to be a wide net. Sure. Because I know Absolutely. so many people who were a fucking mess and were a menace to society and would be dead if they weren't smoking weed. And so I do think marijuana maintenance is good. It, it, it is harm reduction. You know, it, it's better... It's why it's why I always had issues with AA where I was like, oh, so I can smoke chain smoke cigarettes, but I can't drink. That made no sense to me. I'm still an addict. And ultimately, it comes down to you personally, because you will have somebody who, like you said, when if somebody's high is getting high and that helps them from doing heroin and meth, by all fucking means, go ahead and do that. But then you have somebody who just wrote in who knows that they have an addictive personality and can't quit smoking weed and that it's a problem. And if you know that, then you need to address that. If it's getting in the way of your life, and I think this is where it becomes a personal, a personal pro journey. You know, it's a, a question you have to ask yourself. I knew for me... If I smoke weed, it's only a matter of time before I'm down at Venice Beach and I, I'm in a hazy high and suddenly that beer looks really good. And because I'm already high in my brain, it's not that much of a leap to get to just having one beer and then I'm doing lines at the townhouse. I know that for me. Now, that's just because I've tried to only Just smoke weed, weed before. I've done that. I've me tried too. that. Me too. For me, it, for me, it looks like if I smoke weed once, I smoke weed every day, like religiously. I cannot not smoke weed every day. And if I'm smoking weed every day for a period, chances are I'll take a Xanax. And if I take a Xanax, maybe I'll take a Percocet. And then who knows? What's next? It's just, oh. I, I only smoke weed addictively. Like, I only smoke yeah, weed. Yeah, me too. Weed. I'd be smoking every day. If I yeah. could smoke weed, I would. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> I loved it. It was like my true love. I miss it every day. That's You're, no lie. My big reservation is literally 75 years old, on the front porch, in a rocking chair, like, taking bong hits and listening to the Allman Brothers. Like, why shouldn't I get that at 75? Like, why? I still have this thing where I'm like, once I make my millions, I'm you drinking weed. Yeah. I'm drinking and smoking weed again. Fuck it, I'm drinking weed. I'm doing it all. <laughs> I'm drinking weed. Um, you've been ridiculously generous. Thank you so much and a lot of fun. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you um, so much for doing this podcast. And I would, I would just encourage your listeners to tell all of the people I think word of mouth is best so I'll tell everyone I know about it and right you know on. if it if I think it's good to have these nuanced conversations around recovery 
Dude, this was like, I mean, this was the most uh, nuanced recovery conversation I've had with a guest in a, in a long time. So I appreciate Good. that. At the end of every show, we say, uh, we say, stay strong, Dopey Nation, because it's the Dopey Nation, and they mm-hmm. should stay strong. And we say, fucking toodles for Chris, because Chris was my partner who died yeah. and needed, who needed to say toodles because he was an idiot. And I fucking, okay. and now I have to say toodles. But stay thank- strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjo. This thing's hard to keep in tune. <clears throat> Wanna take a walk around the world? Get some honey in my pockets And I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood I wanna be good so bad Be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Wanna take a ride up in the sky Watch as airplanes just pass me by And I want to see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive I want to be good so bad I want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had in my burned out basement listening to the dopey show Home friends I had her on this little radio I keep checking on my pulse because it feels like I might die But the thought straightening up sounds so much better when you're high And I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Well, I hope y'all hear this Makes it through the, uh Big inbox emails. Feel free to play a clip on the show if you want. If not, I know it kind of sucks. All right, uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, y'all.